Okay, so as I said, Second uh, Corinthians is kind of a is a diff- is, is Paul's most difficult letter. Um, and the first uh, reason I believe that it is his most difficult letter is, in, in my little opinion, I'm certainly no scripture scholar, but it, I, I'm, I'm convinced that all of the lost letters of Paul are in 2 Corinthians. So when you read 2 Corinthians, you're actually reading three different letters. Okay, um, That's one reason why. Uh, second reason why uh, is because of what he's trying to do. Now, everywhere Paul went, he took up a collection for the saints, as he called them. Okay? Now, uh, when Paul says a collection for the saints, we don't use the word saint the way the ancient church used it. In Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, the word for saint and the word for holy are the same word. Okay? So when he talks about the collection for the saints, uh, um, uh, the, the Greek word is hyoi. Hi-oi okay? uh, but... Uh, it just means the holy, the collection for the holy ones. We're taking up a collection for the for the church in Jerusalem. You guys have heard of Saint Michael the Archangel? Yeah, Saint Michael. And you say, wait a minute, is he a saint or is he an angel? I mean, saints were human beings, right? And angels are angels. Well, for some funny reason, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, the three archangels, they're called Saint Michael, Saint Gabriel, Saint Raphael. They're actually called Holy Michael, Holy Gabriel, and Holy Raphael. It's just that. In Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, it works perfectly. Somehow, in English, uh, by some sort of uh, ancient, uh, I don't know what, uh, writing or someone, something someone copied over, we end up calling those angels alone saint. But we really mean holy, okay? Because only a human being is a saint. Um, but so he's taking up a collection for the holy ones, okay? Uh, this is the easiest. This is a. Uh, hold on, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Jerusalem. The money went to Jerusalem. Yes. Uh, because the church was in persecution. I'm, I'm getting to that right now. Okay. Um, so he's taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Um, this is where Paul had to run away from. The church in Jerusalem was poor and persecuted. So when Paul travels around, he always takes up a collection. Right? Paul's always taken up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And now in, in Corinth, this is a wealthy place. He's really getting them up for money. But here's the interesting thing. When Paul talks about uh, taking up a collection, he never uses the word money. He never uses the word money. He talks about grace. He talks about willing gift. He talks about relief for the saints. He talks about alms, but he never says funds. Paul never says money. I'm not as good as Paul, okay? I'm not as good as Paul. But Paul, Paul keeps it all... I'm afraid if I did that, people wouldn't know what I was talking about. But Paul keeps it all on a spiritual level. Okay? And he exhorts the Christians uh, to, to generosity. And the interesting thing here, I'm going to read from uh, chapter 9, verses 6 to 9. The interesting thing here is something, the thing that's often forgotten, um, is that this is an essential part of Christianity. It's not optional. Right? Paul says, the point is, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that you may always have enough of everything, and may provide an abundance for every good work. As it's written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Okay, so I think the interesting thing there is that when Paul's talking about that, his lead-up to that statement is that um, is that this giving, this sharing, even when he's he's strictly talking about a collection right here, he's talking about people donating funds. This is an essential part of Christianity. 
right? Um, the ancient church fathers, they used to say that spiritual growth is a table that stands on three legs. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Okay? Sometimes people tend more one towards another. Some people are really into prayer. Uh, I don't know a whole lot of people that are really into fasting. Okay? But, um, actually I did know one guy who was really into fasting. I, I knew a, a, a seminarian, uh, he... He was just really independent. He went down several collar sizes, and you know, they had the rector was slipping candy bars under his door, you know, to get him to get him to get back up to health. Um, anyway, uh, but or, or but the Paul Paul is uh, Paul's making the point that one of them that's often neglected, which is giving. Okay, this is an essential part of Christianity, uh, and it's the easiest section of all. This collection for the saints is very simple. He's taking up money for for the poor persecuted church in Jerusalem, and that brings us to our last section. Tears in my uh, in my little opinion a separate letter, okay. Um, uh, Paul in in uh, in this section he's defending his apostleship, and this gives us a little insight into the mind of a saint, right? Paul gives us a little insight into the mind of a saint. He's afraid that if the charges that are leveled against him by all those Gnostics back in Corinth, if those things get legs, it's going to do harm to the faith of the people. And he really doesn't even care about himself. He cares much more about what people think of Christ because of him than he cares about what people think of him. Okay, So this is, this is the point of view uh, here of, of a saint. One of the main things Paul's defending himself against is the charge of being a weak apostle. Right? They said he's not a he's not a real he's not a real apostle. And Paul was saying, no, my my, my strength is in my suffering. Okay. And Paul was uh, meek, self-effacing. Paul was gentle. Uh, Paul never boasted of himself. And this little passage here, uh, you've heard this read before, in which he kind of kind of does defend himself here. He's trying to he's trying to defend himself so that he can defend the entire church of Jerusalem. And I read from 11, 12 to 15, and 22 to 30. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work out on the same they work on the same terms we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Far greater labors, far more imprisonment, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I've been stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from other things. There's the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. Okay, and you thought you had a bad day. Right? So here's Paul... He's saying, "Look, I'm way more qualified than my opponents. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to stand up for myself. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a descendant of Abraham, just same as they are. In my race, in my descendancy, in my in my Jewish identity, I'm as the equal of all these people. But in my ministry for Christ, I'm far more qualified than they are because of what I've suffered." Paul once again identifying himself with the sufferings 
uh, of Christ. And you, you know, Jesus, he says, you know, if, you, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And so often we say to ourselves, yeah, but I'll be exempt, won't I? <laughs> that, won't really, that won't really happen to me. Hey, which son among you does a father not chastise? Okay? Which son among you does a father not chastise? So Paul's, Paul's saying, I share in his sufferings, and that's my proof that I share in his ministry. Okay? So one last tiny little section here we're going to take from chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 10. Uh, you've heard this before. Kind of interesting. Paul's once again defending himself. Okay? If I must boast, there's nothing to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations in the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. On my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I wish to boast, I shall not be a fool, for I shall be speaking the truth. If I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me, and to keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should be taken from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, all the more gladly boast of my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak... It's then that I'm strong. That's when he makes it very, very clear. So all these things about being uh, outside the body, being caught up into the third heaven, this might seem kind of strange to you, but you know, if you've read anything about uh, Teresa of Avila, if you've read anything about uh, Catherine of Siena or little St. Therese of Lisieux, it's actually an experience that, uh, you know, in, at certain states of spiritual growth, uh, people have ecstatic prayer. They lose track of time. You ever heard of this sort of thing before? Okay? One of my favorite stories of this comes from um, St. Philip Neri. Now, St. Philip Neri knew that he was very likely to pass into ecstatic prayer. He just lose track of time, everything. So St. Philip Neri had to deal with his altar servers. That if he's up there saying Mass and he launches off into one of his little trips, little prayer trips, the altar servers are to extinguish the candles and come back in two hours. Light the candles. He'd probably be ready to go again. Okay? So... Um, so, so St. Paul is talking about this ecstatic prayer experience, but I think the interesting thing here is when he talks about the thorn that's in his side. We don't know what this thorn was in Paul's side. Maybe it was uh, some kind of a weakness. Maybe it was a person. Um, but whatever it is, Paul asked to have this suffering removed. Now, who hasn't asked to have a suffering from their life removed? Okay, everybody has. God, come and help me. Deliver me from this. And God's answer is no. My grace... It's sufficient for you. Okay? My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's not a masochist. But there is a point here. We're living in a fallen world. We're living in a broken world. We're living in a world that's been twisted out of shape. Twist. And to get it back into shape, it's got to be untwisted. And it hurts. And Christ asks us to participate in that in the redemption of the world. He asks us to share in his sufferings. And he said in earlier chapter, he said in, in, in uh, um, uh, you know, the, like I mentioned last week, 
the more we share in his sufferings, the more we share in his glory. The more we're like him as he was in this world, crucified, scorned, reviled, the more we're going to be like him in the next, which is, which is glory. And Thomas Aquinas uh, comments on this passage and he says, why does God allow suffering? Well, the specific answer is that we don't know, but we do know this. It's always because there's some greater good that he's going to, be, going to bring about as a consequence from it. Okay? Always draw, draw out something even greater. Or as Paul himself says in Romans, he makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. And his grace really is sufficient. Okay? So, Paul's toughest letter, 2 Corinthians. Um, I hope that I've given you an idea of its content, of its theme and of major strains that go through it that will help you when you hear letters from readings from Corinthians to help you. Uh, Paul talking about suffering. Paul defending his ministry. Paul talking about the collection uh, for, for, for the holy ones, for the saints, as he calls them in Jerusalem. Okay? So Paul finishes up Corinthians here. He prepares for his next visit, uh, which he may or may not have ever been able to make. Um, after his third missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem. He gets put on trial. We'll talk about that later. He gets sent to Rome. He gets sent to prison. He gets out of prison. He does a little bit more mission work. He might have gone back to Corinth. We're not really sure. Okay, um, but, uh, but Paul kind of dodges and weaves and frolics and balances his way through this letter, but I, I, hope that, uh, I hope that that helps you to navigate your way through Paul's toughest letter. The good news is next week, the letter is Galatians. All right? Galatians is my favorite letter. I love Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's much, much easier to get a handle on than these Corinthian letters. Um, any questions about anything that I've said? Yes? What is the difference between grace and mercy? Well, in God, there is no difference. Right? In God, there is no difference. Um, God is mercy. And you could say that grace is God himself sharing his, his life with you. So in God, there is no difference. Um, you could say that in our case, grace is something we receive. Mercy is a decision that we turn and go and, and act on. But in God, grace and mercy would have to be the same thing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I have a couple questions. Um, first of all, you made a follow-up and said that you expect to be suffering that uh, God will not take the suffering away, but he'll give you the strength to endure. Yes. But if you look at Christ and see the miracles that he performed, it seems like that was the opposite. There were people that had such great faith in the suffering. There were people that were blind and crippled. They certainly had that as a suffering. Yes. Right. Okay. And and for that matter, uh, a disconnect with what we experience in our own lives. How many people pray for miracles and don't get them? Okay. Uh, the question that we want to ask ourselves is: uh, Did Christ always heal everyone who came to Him? And I, I think the answer would have to be no. Uh, Christ himself pleaded in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this chalice pass me by, and hey, and the answer, God the Father was, you know, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay? Yes. 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 Uh, what we need to get to to answer the heart of your question is the nature of Christ's miracles and why he worked the miracles that he worked. Okay? 
part of the reason why Christ worked miracles, particularly miracles of healing, was a revelation that he was in fact the Messiah. Those were messianic promises that the Messiah would undo the curse. The Messiah would reverse the curse of sin, of death, and he brought people back from the dead. Uh, of illness, of all these things. So, the, of, of all the miracles that, that, that Christ worked, the vast majority of them were healings. Okay, so clearly he's established. When Christ works a miracle, um, he tries to elicit faith from people. He tries to show people that he's the Messiah. Uh, there's always some kind of purpose to it. Uh, I, I think, though, like for example, how about the woman caught the woman with afflicted uh, for twelve years with hemorrhages? And she says, if I might just brush up against the tassel of his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? Okay, well, he's walking through a crowd of people, and I think the, the, the apostles then turn and say, well, Jesus, who didn't touch you? Who touched me? Who touched me? And power went out from me. Um, the one who touched him in faith. What about all the other people? Didn't they have healings they might have needed to? Didn't they have afflictions? Why weren't they healed? I don't know. I think that it's safe to say that every miracle of Christ is deliberate. Um, I don't know why some were healed and some weren't. But where Paul comes in to help us is he starts to talk to us about when God is is not um, one who answers all of our prayers with a yes. What do we make of that? Um, uh, so I think that it, it, it's a false dichotomy, all right? Um, and I think that it would, it would, it would, we'd have to have a, a more complete picture of Christ in recognizing why some people... Um, well, how about the, the raising of Lazarus, for example? Um, Jesus, stayed on, Jesus stayed on for two days, and he let Lazarus die. He could have gone over and helped him. He didn't go over and help him. But he had a reason. He was going to go raise him from the dead later. He was really going to make a sign. Okay? Now, that idea, I think that would be a more complete idea. Why does Jesus allow some people to suffer? Why doesn't he cure... I don't know what the great grander plan is, but I trust that there's a grander plan. And that's what that's what Thomas Aquinas says if the, when he talked about why he didn't heal some people and why he did heal others. Because when Paul, I'm sorry, when Jesus performed a healing, uh, when it, it always fell into his larger divine plan. It's just that the larger divine plan is bigger than we can capture in the coverage of the book. It stands to reason that it's bigger also to understand why he didn't heal some people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other question I have is just going back to this collection. So collection, the funds, the funds, the government's collection. Mm-hmm. I went to Jerusalem. Yes. I went to Jerusalem. What happened? I really don't know, actually. Yes. You know how tempted I am to make jokes at this point? <laughs> What's that? What's that? They started, they started a bingo. I can tell you that they definitely went in twos. They definitely had sealed bags. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Um, 
Um, the short answer to your question is I, I, I don't know, and simply because actually the Apostles is really the source for our knowledge on this. It doesn't comment on what, where the collection went or what they did. The oldest church I know of is in Ethiopia. The oldest church I know of is from the third century in Ethiopia, the oldest Christian dwelling that was constructed as a church. And it's cruciform, right? Um, just like the little church St. Jude's going to build. Um, but why Ethiopia? Uh, because Probably because that was one of the places where the church wasn't being persecuted. And I think part of the reason why they didn't start building churches on a grand scale until after the, the uh, uh, Edict of Milan and Emperor Constantine uh, was because you know, the, the church didn't have a building because the church was being persecuted. So that's where our earliest churches come from. The only example I know that's before the Edict of Milan is in Ethiopia. Uh, but uh, I'm... Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, it's just not something I've given a detailed study to. Uh, uh, the oldest churches we know are after the Edict of Milan, except for that one in Ethiopia. I, I think it's an important question, and this is an asterisk, because mm-hmm. people today accept the idea of a church. Yes. Well, actually, Roman, I, I think that the, the 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 short the short answer to your question is, strictly speaking, we don't have to have one. Strictly speaking, we don't have to have one. Um, if we uh, were under persecution, maybe we can have mass in your basement. You know, do you have a basement? Yes. Okay, we'll come on down. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll come on down, and then we can we can have like a potluck or something like that. If we, uh, it, it, strictly speaking, there's your answer. But can we do things better? Yes. Do physical realities help us in our spiritual life? Heck yes. Um, does, has has the, the believing community guided by the power of the Holy Spirit and under the guidance of? Uh, the successor of St. Peter found that it's to the best of people's Christian lives when we, when we do put up structures in stone that express our faith. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it would, the, the, the extreme would be the, the persecuted church. And heck, that happened under communism. I mean, I was in, uh, I was in Czechoslovakia and I got a chance to talk to the uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Prague who was washing windows. But uh, can, can I move on? Anybody else have any other questions? Good enough for one day? Okay. Roman, go ahead. Yep. Uh, I think that uh, if you go back to the time that uh, I think the first attempt to it was because of the company was first out of the town. Yes. And if I remember correctly, who was it that said? Prophet Nathan. Pardon? Nathan. Nathan. Nathan the prophet. So said to. Yes. Well, um, yes. Um, well, uh, last one out, hit the lights then, okay? No. Um, um, uh, how about this? For the sake of all those listening on audio, I'm going to call it off. Have a great evening.